We commence today's show talking politics with former Wisconsin U.S. Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. Mandela Barnes, how are you today, sir? I'm blessed. How about yourself? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I say it all January. Yeah, 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 I I ain't mad at you. (laughs) Happy New Year to you, number one. Number two, I am blessed and highly favored. And number three, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I'm just glad to be here and glad to be on with you, Mandela, once again. So thank you for the time. Let's make the most of this half hour that we have here. Um, We were talking to one of our guests yesterday, for obvious reasons, one week from yesterday. Uh, the, the, the presidential, presidential race for the White House really kicks up officially uh, with Iowa. Uh, the caucuses are next Monday. Um, I said yesterday. That was Monday, I guess, on our show Monday. So uh, anyway, this coming Monday, uh, the Iowa caucuses kick these things off. And we'll talk about Wisconsin and the role, the critical role it will play in this presidential race in a moment. But what do you make of the fact that all these years later, um, while the Democrats move South Carolina up on the calendar uh, for uh, the primaries, uh, this country, though, still focuses on Iowa uh, as the first place uh, for any uh, any uh, any uh, harbingers or or suggestions or narratives about what we can expect. What do you make of Iowa being that place? I'll just tell you, it shows who the parties are, are prioritizing. Mm-hmm. I can tell you right now that the Democratic Party made a very conscious choice to make South Carolina uh, an earlier state than Iowa and the Republicans because their base has not changed over the last several decades, uh, over, over, you know, since, since whenever. Uh, the reality is they have a specific set of voters that they want to focus on, and they have made that very clear. They're very intentional about doing that. Mm-hmm. What, 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 since you went through, I followed you as I always do. What do you make these days of the GOP base? You use that phrase. Let's interrogate it for a moment. What do you make of that base? What's happening to it, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the GOP base is one that does not have any interest in growing. It has zero interest in diversifying, it has zero interest in keeping up with the times. That's why all their policies are so regressive, whether it's abortion bans or whether it's limiting the right to vote for people. Uh, they have zero desire to try to move forward as we move forward as a country. They have zero interest in being lockstep. Uh, as we see generational shifts in this country, I can say the Democratic Party has been significantly more responsive uh, to the changes uh, in society. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the Democratic Party, we saw President Biden uh, just recently at Mother Emanuel Church, and we saw all the drama of the ceasefire protesters shouting him down and the black folk of the church responding for more years. Everybody saw the clips. They've been everywhere. And yet I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. Uh, let me just ask you point blank. Do you believe that while Joe Biden is calling for black folk to stand with him, as he did in that church, has Joe Biden earned the black vote? I will say that Joe Biden has been transformative in his presidency in many different ways, taking on issues like environmental justice. The number of black female uh, federal judges that he has appointed has exceeded any number throughout the course of history in this country. Uh, The fact that he has made uh, black issues a priority, the number of appointments that he's made to his own cabinet. Uh, he's, He's a president who has very real desire. I mean, the decision to move uh, South Carolina up in the primary calendar wasn't one that just happened without the president's consent. Uh, I will say uh, the fact that he has shown up and made transformative investments in job training and job creation in the black community is something uh, that needs to be, uh, you know, acknowledged. It, it is a very real thing. Now, look, I will say there's always more work to be done. I'm not here mm-hmm. to say the president is doing everything perfectly mm-hmm. uh, because that's not the case with any president. Uh, the reality is 
with there being so much more work to do, there has been a solid framework. There has been a solid base and foundation that's been laid by this uh, administration with the president and the vice president. Yep. I hear the point you, uh, you're making when we come forward. I want to continue interrogating that because there's a, there's a distinct difference between symbolism and substance for me, as I know there is for you. Uh, they're both necessary. I wouldn't poo-poo either one of them. But symbolism and substance are not the same things. Uh, and symbolically, no doubt, the president gets an A+. He's put a lot of black faces in high places. I'm just not sure he's been progressive, uh, as progressive as he ought to be on a number of fronts. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Wisconsin, the role it's going to play. That's Mandela Barnes' home state. You're listening to Mandela Barnes right now on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Mandela Barnes, let's pick up where we left off a moment ago. Um, you and I both agree there's a distinct difference between symbolism and substance. Symbolically, no question that the president has done a great deal uh, to put black faces in high places. But is that enough? No, I absolutely agree. Uh, and it's certainly more than about symbolism because we've had an increase uh, in black participation in health insurance. That's about 400,000 new people. Uh, who have been able to sign up for healthcare? The reduction in black child poverty. You got to think about the child tax credit that the president has pushed, but Congress failed to act. I mean, there has been historic investments in black college and university. I am a HBCU grad myself. That's over $7 billion for HBCUs. Uh, there's been action that's been taken on marijuana legalization, or excuse me, I say marijuana reform, mm-hmm. which unfortunately a lot of people in our community have been impacted by that. And lowering the uh, cost of prescription drugs, the cost of insulin. Uh, more people are going to qualify for lowering insulin prices this year. So there has been a lot of substance, and unfortunately, much of it uh, is in the weeds, doesn't necessarily uh, get the media attention or not the not the not the things people are talking about, you know, when you hanging out with family or at the dinner table or at the uh, at the barbershop. But these things are actually happening to help make uh, life for black Americans a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as to, um, first of all, your HBCU. I mentioned we're going to be talking about Fisk later in today's program. So go ahead, go ahead and shout out your HBCU, Mandela Barnes. You know, Fisk was down the street. I visited Fisk campus. I had a, I had a great time there. I had a great time. I went to I'm a proud graduate of Alabama A&M University. There you go. There you go. Uh, I, I I love whenever anybody says that. Let me just give you an opportunity to push it out there. I I, I manage you about that. Um, on there there there's there are a number of issues um, on which uh, black people have been disappointed uh, in President Biden. Progressive issues, um, namely, as you well know, voting rights, uh, meaningful police reform. Um, those issues stand out uh, pretty dramatically, uh, number one. Number two, these polls, every poll, every survey, every study, which is part of the reason why Joe Biden was at Mother Emanuel, uh, these polls continue to suggest that at best uh, his support in black America is soft and at, wor- at worst it has shrunk um, uh, to some degree. Uh, h- how do you read that? If the president has been that great for black people symbolically and substantively, how do you uh, read the, the the feelings that many have of disappointment on voting rights uh, and police reform that didn't move at all in the Senate, number one? And number two, how, did, how would you explain his softening position at best in these polls? So I will say there's always room for disappointment. But what I can also say is that we have a president who shows up and who will at least listen. Uh, the alternative, who is the likely Republican nominee for president, who is the former president, Donald Trump, would not at all ever imagine taking these steps to even listen to our community and our concerns. Now, on policing, I will say 
the use of chokeholds were restricted in federal law enforcement. The mm-hmm. president signed an executive order uh, given the lack of action by the U.S. Senate. Uh, and when it comes to polling numbers, look, polling numbers are, you know, snapshot points in time, but they are numbers that we should take seriously. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that the president is making good faith efforts to show up, uh, to hear the concerns, to not just make the poll numbers look better, but to actually assuage the concerns of uh, people in the black community. Yep. Let me ask you, uh, as, as painful though it may be, I know some time has passed, Mandela. I'm sure it's still a little painful, but I think it's. I think the answer to this question will be instructive and informative in a variety of ways. Um, I do not know which, uh, but I want to ask anyway, and I'll interrogate it at the appropriate time. But I, I wonder if I can ask you to look back on your Senate campaign. There are a whole lot of people across this country, black, white, red, brown, yellow, who are rooting for you. A lot of folk contributed to your campaign uh, from parts unknown. Um, the, 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 the national media was following this campaign pretty closely, thinking that you had a chance to win this thing in Wisconsin. And what a what a day that would have been for a brother named Mandela. Uh, you think Barack is something, a brother named Mandela, uh, to pull off a U.S. Senate race in Wisconsin. It's not lost on me nor you that there were a number of other high-profile African-Americans who were on the ballot in some pretty major Senate races. There was North Carolina, there was Florida, uh, there was you, there are other states. But a number of high-profile African-Americans on the ballot, and of course there was uh, Raphael Warnock, who pulled it off in Georgia, but there were a number of, again, high-profile black folk running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, Never that many uh, high-profile African-Americans on the ballot as the Democratic Party nominee in states going to the Senate. I've thought about it many times, that all five or six of y'all won that would have been a game-changing moment to have five or six Negroes go to the Senate at the same time would have just, would have just sort of changed the game. As, as you look back on that moment that, that had so many of us titillated and excited about really putting a new face on the U.S. Senate, it didn't quite work out that way. But uh, broadly speaking and specifically inside of Wisconsin, just share with me some of your takeaways. I'm sure you've had a few time, a little time now to, to think about it. Give me some of your takeaways from that, from that critical moment, that historical moment. Yeah, certainly. You know, I'm incredibly proud of the race that we won. Certainly wish that things would have uh, turned out differently, but I'm proud of the historic strides we made uh, in terms of fundraising, in terms of voter participation. Uh, the most recent election versus uh, that particular incumbent, we had you know, far more votes uh, than the last few attempts or the last couple attempts uh, at that race, at that seat. Uh, but given how far we were able to come, and I'm an incredibly grateful for all the support I received from across the country, uh, there was still too much uh, that we were that we put into that race to walk away, to give up. And that's why I'm still involved. I'm still involved because I look at where the shortcomings were. I look at, you know, where we could have had higher voter participation. And that's the reason uh, why I joined up with Power to the Polls, make sure that we are addressing the issues that voters have, the frustrations that voters have. When I say that frustration with the president is valid, that goes for every elected official, goes for every candidate, myself included. So if there are areas, pockets where I could have improved, I want to make sure that we're doing that. That means showing up, talking to voters about the issues, doing the voter education piece long before election season rolls around. At Power of the Polls, we're focused on year-round engagement, making sure people are familiar with the issues at hand and making sure that people can actually have an outlet to voice 
uh, their opinions and to voice those frustrations instead of uh, having people not show up to the polls because they feel that both parties are the same or they feel that nobody's doing anything for them. And if people feel like nobody's doing nothing for them, then they should be able to express that in a productive way, uh, not just stay at home, because, look, the elections are going to happen with or without folks. And if we aren't showing up, then we will never have our concerns uh, be addressed. Now, is everything going to change overnight? No. And as bad as things are, that leads to even more frustration that things aren't changing overnight for the better for us when it seems like that constantly happens for the most wealthy, for the same old people who've gotten ahead in our society, who've gotten ahead in this economy, who've gotten ahead in this political environment. And so we are working to build power so that folks know that it's more than about election day. It's about what happens the day after the election. How do we hold leaders accountable to actually drive change in communities? Uh, So with that being said, uh, you know, the only thing I, I I really could have used certainly was uh you know more hours more yeah. more, more weeks left in the sure. campaign one more week and you know whatever the case may be uh, I can't spend too much time on that I will drive myself crazy doing so uh, drive myself half crazy already thinking about crazy <laughs> as often as I do you know no I, I appreciate you taking the question because I know it can be a little a little, little tricky at times but I it was it it, uh, it was worth asking because I figured something good would come out of it and uh, you you gave us something to think about um, you mentioned prior to the polls uh, I'm not naive. In asking this, but of all the things that you could have done after that historic race where you ran uh, such an amazing campaign, and obviously your career ain't over with yet, that's just a moment. Uh, you mentioned earlier about polls are just a snapshot in time. That was just a snapshot in the time of your life then. Uh, I know there's a lot more to come from Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin and beyond. But of all the things that you could have done, again, no naive to hear why, um, what happened and why did you think that this work was so critical right now? You chose this as opposed to X, Y, or Z. Why this? Why this? Well, really, it's me returning to my uh, roots as an organizer. Mm -hmm. My first job out of college, I was a field organizer, knocking on doors for $400 a week Mm -hmm. uh, in gas reimbursements. Uh, And I spent time as an issue-based organizer with uh, an interfaith group taking on issues of jobs and economic development, education, immigration reform, and treatment instead of prison. And uh, this was just sort of a natural space uh, for me to land. And building power helps us combat big money. That's another mm-hmm. part of my race too, because mm-hmm. I want people I want people to remember that you know the outside spending, uh, the super PAC spending in my campaign or during my campaign, uh, the other side dwarfed us by twenty six million dollars. Now, candidate for candidate, I raise more uh, than my opponent, candidate for candidate, but the outside spending twenty six million dollars and still coming within one uh, percent uh, shows. You know what the power of organizing means. It was just still a very, very steep uh, hill mm-hmm. to get over. Now, if we do the organizing work effectively, if we do it on the front end instead of waiting 90 days before an election, we'll be able to combat big money. We'll be able mm-hmm. to be uh, more impactful than dollars spent on the airways when we're doing this in a grassroots way. Yep. What since you went there, let me ask a question that I've never asked uh, uh, before of you, and I don't know that I've asked of anybody else. Maybe I have, but it, it occurs to me now, given what you've just said, Mandela Barnes, and that is, and, and, and let me just preface it by saying I know there's really no way around it per se at the moment because of the Supreme Court decision uh, in Citizens United. You know, people are, you know, you know, corporations are people, and anybody can donate what they want to donate, and I'm still upset about that Citizens United uh, decision. Uh, that said. When you mentioned that you outraged, here's a black man running against a, a white male incumbent in Wisconsin, and he outraises the white brother. 
Mandela Barnes, candidate to candidate, outraged the white boy, the white guy he was running against in Wisconsin. You heard him say a moment ago, though, that where he got where he got where he took a beat down was the twenty six million in other funding, you know, outside funding. Twenty six million dollars. Now, I'm not naive. Neither are you. We know that these Senate races are not just about the particular state uh, in which the campaign is being contested or, or, or held. Uh, the Senate is a national body and what they pass impacts and affects all of us, even though you represent a particular state. But there's something really, really strange to me. Uh, and it can cut both ways. Uh, Raphael Warnock got a whole lot of money outside of Georgia that helped help him win. And that made the difference. I can see it cutting the other way as well. But it's just a strange thing to me that that much money can be raised outside of the state, outside of Wisconsin, which impacts a race that is really about the citizens of Wisconsin. Again, it cuts both ways. I don't need to color any more than that. What do you make of that reality that in these Senate races, so much of this money comes from outside the state? Well, I can tell you, much like uh, our economy, our politics is influenced by a handful of billionaires pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. We have and it wasn't like uh, 26 million people donating one dollar. We're talking about a handful of people Mm -hmm. who, you know, were able to reach into their pockets, mostly due to tax breaks and incentives that the incumbent that my opponent actually voted for that put more money back into their pockets. So really. It comes out to a return on investment. I mean, these are these are pennies to, to these. So twenty six million dollars is nothing to a lot of these people, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, when I, when I, when we talk about you know Black Americans, when we talk about voters who are frustrated with the system, working class voters. You know, this is life changing, not just for one person. We're talking about a life changing sum of money for households of people. Yet we have one or two or you know five people who can just easily write that check and ultimately uh, change the course of our politics to make sure that they keep the benefit while so many people continue to struggle. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating now. We're working to fight that. Uh, but while that fight is going on to get big money out of politics, we can only, uh, we, you know, we can only work on the things that we can control. Yep, and that's why you're doing power to the polls. I get it, I get it, I get it. Uh, let me offer this, I think, is the exit question. Got about two minutes to go here. Um, and that is, as we sit in this moment, uh, you mentioned earlier, I repeat once again, that polls are a snapshot in time. But these polls um, have a pattern to them. And the pattern at the national level, specifically specifically now I'm talking about the race of, uh, the presumed race of Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, part two here, the sequel. Um, the, the polling is a snapshot in time, but these polls also have a pattern to them, Mandela Barnes. And so as you sit here right now, I got you on tape here. Uh, <laughs> as you sit here on, on this date, uh, what is your gut feeling about the, the, the months ahead between now and November? It's going to be a brutal, uh, few months ahead. Um, as you know, the former president will do or say whatever, including inciting violence. So, yeah, he's done it before. We can only expect that he'll do it again, uh, which you know causes a whole lot of concern. Uh, but this is a race, too, where people should realize what's at stake, whether it's democracy or authoritarianism. And our job is to make sure that people actually know what authoritarianism <laughs> looks, looks like. It's very abstract for a lot of people because mm-hmm. we haven't had the experience in our lifetime. And for many folks, it may not mean a whole lot to them. It may just be a word. Uh, but I can tell you, I can assure you that it's certainly not a path any of us want to go through. It's certainly not a path that we want to have set for yeah. our future generations. Uh, this will be a race that we will see incredible sums of money spent in so many places. And there will also 
see an incredible amount of disinformation that's yeah. flooding through communities, which is, again, why organizing is so important. But we can expect lie after lie from the other side. Uh, and it's tough when you are having a battle that's waged between fact and fiction. Yeah. You, know, you know, you know, you know, the old adage is like, you know, people, you don't argue with fools. Cause people from a distance can't tell who is who. That's right. But this will be uh, that exact scenario where there will be foolish arguments waged against factual arguments and people from we, a distance won't be able to tell the two. And we need to shorten that distance to make sure people can be up close and personal to know what's happening. I take your point. We'll, we will see. We'll be talking about it in the days ahead, whether or not that message that Joe Biden is putting out there is saving democracy. He's going to wrap his campaign uh, around the fact that this election is really about saving this democracy from anarchy, from authoritarianism. We'll see if that message sells or if they say down, down south, we'll see if that dog hunts. In the meantime, we thank Mandela Barnes for this conversation, for the work he has done already and the work he's continued to do through Power to the Polls, Wisconsin. Mandela, appreciate you, brother. All the best to you. Talk to you soon. Of course. Talk to you later.